Well, in 1993, some of you may know this, but I trust not everybody will know this. 1993, a martial art form called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was introduced to the world. The Gracies, a family from Brazil who had developed and perfected this uh, fighting style over sec- several decades, desired to showcase the superiority of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu over every other martial art in the world. And that was their claim, that it was better than any other martial art in the world. And so they formed what was called the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and they put forward their best practitioner, Hoist Gracie, and he would be put against men of all different kinds of fighting styles, and often men who were much larger and stronger and bigger than he was, to demonstrate that overcoming one's opponent was not best accomplished through the exercise of sheer force like punching or kicking or even physical size and strength, but through leverage and using one's opponent's strength against him. In fact, in some of Hoyce's bouts, it appeared that at several points he was actually yielding to his larger opponents and being dominated by them. His opponent would be on top of him, wrestling him, grappling with him, and it would appear that Hoyce was finished. When only moments later, his opponent, out of nowhere, would tap the mat to indicate that he was giving up. In all the struggle, in what appeared to be a losing strategy, Hoyce was, had overcome his opponent. He appeared to be losing when all the while he was winning. In yielding, there was victory. Hoist overcame his enemy with unconventional weapons that did not return force with force, but that were nonetheless effective for victory. When we come to the scripture, we encounter a gospel that calls us to overcome evil with Good with unconventional, unconventional, unconventional weapons of warfare. It is a gospel where God does not return evil to his enemies, but overcomes their evil with his goodness by forgiving us and transforming us. Rather than return our evil with more evil, God gives his son to take upon himself our evil and the punishment that we deserve. So that we can be forgiven and accepted by God. And we have to ask what kind of life is produced by this gospel. The kind of gospel that says in Romans 5, 8, that God loved us while we were yet his enemies and gave his son for us. What kind of life is produced by this kind of glorious, unsurpassed, unparalleled gospel? And Romans 12 through 16 answers that question. What kind of life does is produced, flows out of this gospel? And Romans 12 through 16 is going to tell us, but we need to first look at Romans 12, just for a moment, verses 1 through 2, to see where this all starts. Paul says, after giving this broad and detailed account of the gospel and what God has done for our salvation, he then says, I appeal to, the, appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is the first step? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
What is the first step? It's do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. That is the first step. We give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God in light of his great mercies, not in order to be justified, but because we are justified. And then we uh, set upon a road of being transformed by our mind. Because in the everyday of life, when we are confronted by a myriad of situations and people and temptations and choices and decisions, we must grow in our ability to discern God's good and perfect will. The renewal of our mind is vitally important for our topic today because if you look with me, we have a sentence that precedes our passage. Our passage is verses 17 through 21. We have this important sentence that precedes it. Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. This exhortation is fitting because in the following admonitions in verses 17 through 21, they are going to go completely against conventional wisdom. We will be sorely tempted when we are confronted with evil, when people commit evil against us, to develop a complex response strategy that appears to our flesh to be wise, but is in fact either passive or vindictive. Someone launches a verbal attack against us and our first inclination often is either to fold back into ourselves and hide and cower or to launch a counterattack. But oh, the wisdom of scripture that does not let us run to either of those extremes. Paul's inspired instruction here in verses 17 through 21. Do not allow us to fold into ourselves in passivity In the face of evil, nor does it allow us to take vengeance into our own hands. So today we are going to be equipped by God with five spiritual weapons for overcoming evil with good. That's what we want to learn to do today. We want to learn to overcome evil with good. We want to follow in the footsteps of our savior who exemplified what it looks like to overcome evil with good. God is going to equip us in this short little passage with five spiritual weapons for overcoming evil with good. Unconventional, 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 but effective. I'm not saying that word for the rest of this message. I'll get get some speech therapy later on. But before we launch into this passage, I, I need to preface it by saying this. This is a passage about individual Christians and how they respond to evil that has been committed against them. This is not a passage for a government's global policies. It's not a passage about what we should do as a government in our foreign relations. In Romans 13, Paul explains that God has given the state the sword to execute vengeance on our enemies. For example, when American citizens commit murder, the state is entirely within its biblical jurisdiction to answer that crime with the appropriate punishment. When terrorists leveled the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001, the United States was entirely within its biblical jurisdiction to pursue, find, and punish those who are responsible for the attacks. This is not a passage that gives us insight on how a government should deal with other nations. This has to do with individual Christians, how we deal with evil that's been committed against us. Very important to recognize that because this passage has been used 
to endorse a kind of cowardly pacifism in the face of rampant evil. But that's not what Paul is calling here, us to here. In Romans 13, we'll see that the government actually has the right, indeed the calling, to execute justice and execute vengeance on those who have committed evil. What is Paul talking about in this passage? He's talking about men and women, Christians, seeking out their own personal vengeance, their own personal vindication. And I'm focusing on verses 17 through 21 because I believe it's one uh, complete thought in Paul's mind. You might look up at verse uh, 14 and maybe your, your Bibles that are sectioned off this way, verses 14 through 21 appear to be one block of thought and that's, that's fine, that's legitimate. It can be considered as one paragraph, but even when within verse 17 and following, it appears that Paul is making a complete thought. He begins by saying, repay no one evil for evil, and then he ends in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this appears to be one closed thought, and so each sentence, and this will become important later, each sentence is actually connected to each other. And that will be important for how we interpret a few things in this passage as we move along. But here's the first weapon. What's the first weapon that God has given us out of his arsenal to overcome evil with good? The first weapon is this. Repay no one evil for evil. That's what Paul says here. It's very simple, straightforward. Sentences are short, so we can memorize them and use them whenever we need them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. What is Paul talking about here? This word for evil is a common word for evil in the New Testament. It can be translated harm, translated evil. It refers to uh, committing crimes. It can, uh, refers to sinning against God. It can even refer to harm that's caused by natural causes. Paul's snake bite in Acts 28.5, was, uh, he, he was told that we, he suffered no harm, suffered no evil. You could translate it. A chapter later in Romans, Paul will say that love does no harm to a neighbor. You'll see that in Romans 13.10. And the, uh, the word translated there is the same word translated here for evil. So that you could say in, uh, uh, in Romans 13.10 that what Paul's saying is to violate the latter half of the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 13. To, la- to violate the latter half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet and so on. Is to commit evil against someone. So when Paul is saying... Do not repay evil for evil. He has a broad idea that encompasses all kinds of evil, from large kinds of evil to small kinds of evil. Evil that impacts us in significant and large-scale ways and evil that does not impact us so significantly. What is he talking about? He's talking about any harm leveled against you by another person. Gossip, slander, libel, defamation, physical harm, theft, Unkind words, unjust treatment, harm toward your loved ones, any kind of evil committed against you. That's what Paul is talking about here. Every single one of those offenses I just listed deserves justice, gossip, untrue statements made about you, defamation of your character, physical harm, unlawful taking of your property and so on, mistreatment, harm perpetuated against your loved ones. Perpetrated against your loved ones, I'm sorry. In God's universe, all of those violations deserve justice. From the smallest violation to the biggest. In God's universe, in God's moral universe, 
every crime, whether big or small, every act of evil, every act of injustice will receive in kind punishment, retribution, justice. (coughs) At the end of time, the balance, the scales will be balanced. But see, this passage is not calling for us, calling to us, us to a kind of intellectual indifference or kind of moral relativism. We must be able to say, and this is what Paul is doing. We must be able to say that that slander was, that was spoken against us was slander. That gossip was gossip. That, that physical harm was evil. That those unkind words were unkind words. Paul's not telling us to deal with evil by saying it's no big deal. See, I think a lot of us think that the loving thing is to just ignore the evil, ignore the gossip, ignore the slander and say, ah, that's all right. Oh, it's okay. When in fact, what Paul does here is he calls it evil. For the sake of our spiritual clarity and our health, we must be able to call evil what it is. Physical harm. Defamation of our character, gossip, slander, whatever it might be. This text and other biblical texts imply that we can call evil evil without sinning and without becoming vengeful. Ephesians 4.26, for example, be angry and do not sin. In fact, here's the key about this very issue. If we become passive or willfully ignorant in the face of evil, (coughs) and just allow it to roll over us and fail to call evil what it is, we will not be able to obey this command, believe it or not. In order to even obey this command, we must have the wherewithal to to be able to call evil what it is, even when it's committed against us. We call gossip, gossip. We call slander, slander. We call theft, theft. It's neither humble or holy to ignore something that is sin and say that it is not. Why can we not obey this command if we don't, if we're unwilling to call evil what it is? If we do not call evil what it is, we cannot fully deal with it. We'll only stuff it away and it'll likely smolder and grow into a blaze of bitterness. Isn't that what typically happens? Those of us who enjoy camping, and building campfires and probably as most guys out here just love there's something we love about fire and creating fires i don't know what that's all about but uh if you are someone who is adept at building fires you know that if you put out that fire you have to make sure that every part of that fire (coughs) every coal is completely put out or what can happen is you can have something called a smoldering effect where the, the fire continues to burn underneath the, the, the cover of the dirt or whatever it might be. And then it can kind of build and grow into and blazon into a kind of, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. It can kind of grow into an, embla- uh, an explosion of fire. And that's the same thing that can happen to us when we fail to call evil what it is. If we don't call evil, evil, we are likely to bury it down in our, in ourselves and not deal with it in the right way. And you might be wondering, well, Derek, you know, Proverbs 19.11 says that we, uh, it's the man's glory to overlook an offense. And it is to man's glory to overlook an offense. But that implies that what you are overlooking is an offense. So even there, you are 
clearly, clearly stating what evil truly is. Calling evil what it is allows us to deal rightly with it. It allows us to say that it deserves justice. And that's what we need to be able to do in order to rightly deal with this evil. In order to repay no one evil for evil, we need to be able to say that it is evil so that we can deal rightly with it. So we can do what needs to be done. So we can answer the justice problem, which is what God will do. Evil will always tempt us to pay it back with its own currency. It will always tempt us to pay it back with gossip, with more gossip. Slander with more slander, libel with more libel, defamation with more defamation, physical harm with more physical harm, theft with theft, unkind words with more unkind words, unjust treatment with more unjust treatment. But what we have to do is be able to call evil what it is so that we can deal with it, which is what this passage is going to enable us to do. But this is not merely a call to avoid the external manifestations of returning evil for evil. Yes, it is better to not return the physical evil for evil than it is to uh, act evil even though our hearts are, are wrong. Yes, it's better to restrain, restrain that external act of returning evil for evil if the heart is not pure, but Christ's standard is love that flows from a heart towards our enemies. You might say that's impossible. And yes, it is in our natural state. In fact, that's what Tim's reading was supposed to highlight today. That one of the marks, one of the key marks of a Christian is the ability, the ability by the Spirit to love those who are our enemies. To love those who hate us. So our first weapon in this arsenal is to repay no one evil for evil and in doing that, we must be able to call evil what it is. And that will become clear as we move down this passage. Would you mind getting me a, a Kleenex or something like that? I'm allergies, and I should, have, I should have done that. I should have gotten myself something before I came up here. Next is, Paul again, just straightforwardly. You'll see it in your, your Bibles. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So the first weapon is repay no one evil for evil. but And then secondly, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, in you, some of your Bibles, if you, have, if you have an ESV with you, if that's what you're reading from, it would probably say this. Do not repay evil for evil, but consider what is honorable in the sight of all people. In fact, that word but is not in the original text, but it's implied, I believe. So I think it's right for that uh, word to be there because what I don't think Paul is saying in this particular case is don't repay evil for evil and in order to overcome evil with good, just think about all the various things that you can do that people think are honorable and people appreciate. Thank you. Appreciate that. What he's not saying is just consider all, in order to overcome evil with good, just consider all the things that, that people appreciate and enjoy and so on, and then do those things. <clears throat> he will actually give that kind of instruction elsewhere, like 1 Corinthians 9 through 10, but I don't think that's what's happening here. What is Paul saying? I think it's best to understand it the way that ESV has it, to say, do not repay evil for evil, but consider what is honorable or good in the sight of all people. So that 
What he's saying is that people most intuitively know that personal revenge is neither honorable or good. In all the movies and television shows that present revenge as a virtue, all of those notwithstanding, of course, I think that when people get to the nitty-gritty of life and they really consider what is most important, believers and unbelievers alike, that because... We are created in the image of God. We recognize that personal vengeance is not honorable. It's not useful. It's not glorious. It does not bring all honor to a person. And ultimately, it will hinder our witness to act out in personal revenge. People recognize that that should not be something that we should be about. Unbelievers, unbelievers and believers alike. They recognize that when it comes down to it, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. So the second, and you could say related weapon to the first one is to consider what is honorable in the sight of all people, namely to not take into your own hands personal vengeance. To not take into your hands personal vengeance. To do so will harm our witness And others will recognize that it's not the honorable, it's not the right thing to do. It's not the glorious thing to do. Number three, Paul says this. Very important verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are not only to return, not return evil for evil, but we are to seek actively to live at peace with all. But Paul... (laughs) qualifies this really important statement in two ways. It may not be possible. He says first, if possible, it may not be possible to be at peace with someone because you would violate your conscience or some clear biblical teaching in order to maintain peace with that person. A biblical example of this is in Titus chapter three. You can, you can study that later today. Mark it down. Uh, Titus chapter three verses, uh, 10 and following where Paul instructs Titus on how we should deal with a factious person in the church. Paul says to do this. It's very clear instruction. You rebuke that person once and then twice, and then you have nothing to do with that person. As a pastor, to live at peace with someone who is causing division among the sheep to whom with whom God has entrusted him would be deadly to the flock and woefully negligent. To continue to engage with that person would be futile because their thinking, as that passage in Titus says, is both warped and sinful. But the lack of relational peace, and this is key in thinking about these issues, the lack of relational peace between the pastor and a factious person should never be the fruit of the pastor's bitterness or anger or spite, but a commitment to obey Christ in the scriptures. That is key i'll say it again the lack of relational peace between the pastor and the factious person or anyone else for that matter but that text is specifically for pastors and those in charge of dealing with factious people the the lack of relational peace should never be the fruit of that person's bitterness or anger or spite but a commitment to obey christ in the scripture paul also had to forsake peace with false teachers didn't he There could be no peace with false teachers in terms of their teaching, in terms of their teaching. Paul, both Jesus and Paul in their ministries and Paul in his writing often rebuked 
false teachers and religious hypocrites. They could not be at peace with their teaching. But again, forsaking peace with false teachers was not the fruit of inward malice or bitterness or desire for vengeance towards their enemies. You might be tempted to conclude, you might be tempted to conclude this, that perhaps Jesus was just tired of being being treated unjustly by the Pharisees and tired of being humiliated by them in public, so he started to humiliate them in public. You might be tempted to think that. Perhaps Paul was tired of being ill-treated by the false teachers, so he just took them to task for their false doctrine. But to draw those conclusions about Jesus and Paul would be to uh, be a failure, here it is, to distinguish between relational peace and doctrinal peace. So much would be clear in our dealings with those with whom we have trouble, so much would be clear if we could understand this distinction between relational peace and doctrinal peace. Neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor Peter, nor Jude, or any of the New Testament authors, when they are teaching against false teachers, often in very strong terms, were motivated by inward malice or sinful hatred for people, but a hatred for false doctrine and a love for people who would be influenced by that false doctrine. That's why Martin Luther's famous for saying, peace if possible, truth at all costs. And that's why Paul gives this qualification here. A Christian will, listen, a Christian, a born again Christian will desire relational peace with all people. But he can never be at doctrinal peace with those who are promoting false teaching. It's part of our new heart to desire relational peace with everyone. If you were to come to me and say, oh, I just love it when I'm not at peace with people, I would say, that's a sign of unhealth. That's not spiritual maturity. In Matthew 10, 34 and following, Jesus also warns us that our loyalty to him may cause division with our own family members. Your commitment to live in obedience to Jesus, to share the gospel with your unbelieving family members may create a lack of relational peace with your family members. It just might. So in this case, peace in a relational sense is not possible. But even here, even here, let's get this. Your heart is broken by a lack of peace. You wish it were different. But for the sake of Christ, you hold fast to him and bear the pain of broken relationships. We do not delight in division for its own sake. If you find in yourself a delight in division for its own sake, that is a sign of spiritual unhealth, spiritual sickness. When I find that in my own heart, I am warned and I am admonished by the scriptures. What else does Paul say as he qualifies this statement? He says, so far as it depends on you. This is why we know we don't delight in division for its own sake. Because Paul says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all people. This is a universal statement. Unbelievers and believers. All people. If there is a situation when the terms of peace between you and someone else require you to compromise on the truth of God's word in clear obedience to Christ, you cannot yield. If a friend or loved one is drifting from Christ, then we are obligated to confront their sin 
in hopes of restoration, regardless of the fact that that confrontation may create discord between you and the other person. But the discord should never be the result of personal inward bitterness or desire for vengeance. Never. But look at what he says, just this straightforward statement. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, all people. Now, depending on your personality, I recognize there are different personalities in here. Um, depending on your personality, you may not think that this is such an important command. In your daily Bible reading, you can read over this one without any much, with much conviction, not think much of it. And you recognize that much in the Christian life is a battle against the forces of darkness and unbelief. And you might think, well, peace with others? Well, you know, God won't really mind my strong personality gets in the way uh, with living at peace with others because I'm a soldier for Christ. And uh, I've got a lot of work to do to serve Christ in, the, in this battle. And I commend your desire to do battle for Christ's sake and to recognize that this, we are in a spiritual battle But I just want us to hear today these scriptures and how pervasive the call for peace with others is in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. The word there for strive is a strong word. It gives the idea of pressing towards, striving, reaching, straining what it means is that peace should, with all people should be a priority in our lives. It should characterize our lives. In fact, only those with a good reputation with people outside the church are even qualified to serve as elders. It's one of the things we look for. Are you constantly at odds with other people? Are you constantly at odds with unbelievers? Well, then you may not be qualified to even be an elder strive for peace this means that we are you're making it a priority in your life you're reconciling broken relationships you're making sure that things are well between you and others you are striving for peace all the things that we said before this are true yes we cannot have doctrinal peace with uh those who are teaching wrong things and those who are uh, asking us to compromise our convictions nevertheless we are called romans to uh uh, 12 hebrews 12 to strive for peace with everyone okay if that doesn't convince you let's look at james 3 chapter 13 through 17 this is what james says who is wise and who is understanding among you this is such a good passage by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But here it is. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that the wisdom above is first pure. That's what we've talked about already, right? That is why we made a distinction between relational peace and doctrinal peace. We cannot abide relational peace at the cost of truth. Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, it's not even loving to the other person. 
We think sometimes we kind of remove the contours of off-biblical doctrine and off-biblical truth will we'll kind of get people closer to Jesus when in fact what that does, it obscures what Jesus is really all about. We compromise and we yield in, in those areas and it's actually unloving. We want people to see clearly what Jesus is all about and clearly what Jesus teaches. But how is Christian wisdom characterized when it is first pure? It is then peaceable, gentle. Listen to these words, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do those words characterize your life with others, believers and unbelievers? Does it characterize mine? Now you might say, okay, Derek, I get you, I got you. But the terms of peace between me and another person require me to compromise my biblical convictions or they cause me to uh, compromise my obedience to Christ or violate my conscience. So peace in such a case is an impossibility. Okay, perhaps that is true in your situation. But that doesn't therefore now give you the right or the, the right to innerly rage against a person. As much as it depends on you, must both require outward conduct and inward thoughts and emotions because we know that our actions flow from our hearts. We can only keep our hearts hidden for so long. So the calling is for both inward renewal, inward peace with others and outward peace with others. A believer who is walking in love will long for reconciliation with others. It is part of our new nature to believe all things and to hope all things. We have been reconciled to the creator of the universe and we now desire to be reconciled with all people. It shouldn't feel right when you are a Christian and you are unreconciled with others, believers or unbelievers. Reconciliation is not always possible, but it is always desirable for the Christian. Paul himself even wept tears over those who were enemies of the gospel. If you find yourself delighting in conflict and estrangement from others and delighting in people's hatred upon you, something is wrong. And I'm not talking here about when Paul, I'm sorry, Peter and John in Acts 5 said that they they were beaten and they were persecuted and they were dishonored for the sake of Christ and they considered it a privilege to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. That's not what I'm referring to here. I'm talking about this carnal desire for this carnal uh, uh, desire for or appreciation of people hating you or being at conflict with you. We must be careful that we do not mistake zeal for the gospel for a carnal delight in offending people and making them hate us. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this, this convicts me. The text that we just read in James indicates that the fruitfulness of our lives and our ministries is dependent. It's dependent on whether or not we are characterized by living at peace with others. Some of us wonder why we're not more fruitful in our lives and in our, in our ministries. Could it be that we are harboring bitterness, that we refuse to live at peace with others? Could it be that we've mistaken a delight and zeal for the gospel for a carnal delight in offending people and making them hate us? Could it be that we have not reckoned with the Bible's call to kill bitterness, anger, spite, and pursue peace with all people? Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
again, another text. We're back in Titus. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Listen to this. Paul says, remind them, that is believers, to, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Have you ever read that verse before? Is that even in the Bible? Yes, it's in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. That's an amazing passage in light of what else Paul says about this life and the spiritual life of warfare and dealing with false doctrine and so on. He's calling for us to be at peace with others. This is just pervasive throughout the New Testament. And so we are called to be at at peace with all men, so long as it is possible, so long as it is possible. So then we come to the fourth weapon. This is the the fourth weapon in, in God's arsenal to enable us to overcome evil with good how do we overcome evil with good here's the next one next verse beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god see we need a theological reason a truth about god to keep us from turning these few passages and just a call to try a bit harder because if we don't attach this these commands about living at peace with all people and not returning evil uh, with evil, if we don't attach these commands to a theological truth about God, this will just become another attempt at willpower and will often fail. That's why Paul says here, he gives us a theological reason. He gives us a, a grounding in God himself so that we can be about obeying these commands. One of the key reasons, perhaps the reason, according to this passage, why we cannot live at peace with all men is because we have not located the satisfaction of our desire for justice, which is a good desire. We should all desire justice, both corporately and personally. But we haven't located the satisfaction of our desire for justice in the judge of all the earth who will always do what is right. So long as we are self-centered rather than God-centered in our desire for justice, we will have a difficult time living at peace with all people especially those who have committed evil against us this is the theological hub of this entire passage verses 17 through 21 here's the theological hub of this passage without which you would not have a wheel the spokes would fly off the wheel would fall apart here's the hub leave your leave it to god to avenge beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something. If you have an ESV, it will say, leave it to the wrath of God. If you have an NASB, it will say, leave it to the wrath, and then italics will be of God. The reason for that is because in the original text, it just says, leave it to the wrath. Paul is using a technical word, uh, technical phrase here. It, it means it means the wrath of God, but that's what he's saying here. Saying leave it to the wrath. So the NASB is right to include it. The ESV is right to include it because that is what Paul is clearly saying here. But the reason why that's important is because it points us back to other places in Romans where Paul is talked about the wrath, the wrath of God. Romans one eighteen for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We know that passage. Romans two five and six, speaking to unbelievers who are refused to uh, repent. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 5, 9. There's other passages. I'm just, just reading a few. 
Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then we've already looked at Romans 13, but it says, I'll read it here. Romans 13, uh, 30 through 5, it says this about the government. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So like I said, the ESV, both the ESV and the, the New American Standard are right to include that word there to say it is, is the wrath of God. So when you look at what Paul means when he uses this phrase, the wrath or the wrath of God, this is what he's saying. He's saying, beloved, do never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. There, that satisfaction for justice will be located in the wrath of God. And what does that mean? There are three places I believe Paul has in mind here. He's commanding us to avoid seeking personal retribution, returning evil for evil, because God will avenge that evil against us in one of three places. Here are the three places. First, he will avenge it in the cross of Christ. If that person who has committed, committed evil against you is now or becomes a Christian, God's eternal retributive justice has already been dealt with in Christ. What a glorious thought that is. Those who are in Christ are saved from the wrath of God and have peace with God because of Christ's wrath-bearing sacrifice. <clears throat> if a Christian has committed an evil against you, and this happens, believe it or not. If a Christian has committed evil against you, that is a grievous situation. But we have ample evidence in the New Testament on how to deal with that, don't we? Christ has given us all kinds of wisdom on how to deal with that. But there's no need to seek ultimate justice because that ultimate justice has been dealt with in the cross of Christ. There's no ultimate injustice in the world that you need to repair when your brother or sister sins against you. Remember, however, we need to be able to call sin what it is. And this is why this is so important to clarify this at the beginning. It is not humble or loving to sweep sins of others under the rug and refuse to call evil evil. The only way the cross of Christ helps us in these situations is by calling evil what it is and then placing it on the cross and saying that Christ has died for that evil. When a Christian sins against you, you must call evil what it is and then place it on the cross so that that sin can be dealt with, that just need for justice has been dealt with, and now you are free to not return evil for evil, gossip for gossip, slander for slander, whatever it might be. But that is only if you call it evil and only if you see it as being taken care of in the cross of Christ. Where else does God take care of evil committed against us? He takes care of it through the appropriate authorities. We saw this in Romans chapter 13. God has put the governing authorities in place to deal with injustice. It is good and right for uh, injustice to be dealt with by the, the legitimate authorities. So God has given the, st the state as an instrument to punish evil and to promote the good. God's wrath may be carried out in this way. So we don't take it into our own hands as a, as a kind of vigilante. And if it's not met in the cross of Christ, and if it's not met in the local authorities, it will be met in the final judgment. If one has committed evil against you and they do not find forgiveness in Christ in this life, 
And if they're able to escape the temporal consequences for evil they've committed against you, they cannot escape the final judgment where God will repay them exactly according to their deeds. Justice will be accomplished. The scales will be balanced. The scales of justice will be balanced. You don't need to get vengeance for yourself. Rather, knowing that justice will be dealt with finally and conclusively frees you now to love your neighbor, frees you now to love your enemy. That is the theological basis for our ability to love our enemy. The fact that God will deal with all injustices committed against us in eternity. And it even should cause a kind of heartbrokenness over our enemies. What could be worse than facing God's judgment for unforgiven sin? Do you wish that on your worst enemy? What could be worse? So our hearts are broken. And yet we know that God's justice will be repaired. No need to go get it for ourselves. John Newton, one of my favorite writers, he's from a pastor from the 18th century. He's the author of Amazing Grace. Most of you know about him. He was the great letter writer. He's known for his great letters that he wrote. And here's one I think that really puts into uh, uh, words what I'm trying to express here. He's He was written... Now, someone had written him and said, can you help me deal with this particular person? He appears to be an enemy and I need to respond to him and I don't know how it should go. I should go about it or what it should look like. And so this is Newton's response. Listen to his response. Very helpful. He writes in his letter, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart and love to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence on every page that you write. If he is a believer, in a little while you will meet him in heaven, and he will be more dear to you than the nearest friend you have on earth now. If he is an unbeliever, he is more proper the object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. Another great uh, pastor, theologian, Charles Spurgeon, in response to a similar letter, wrote back just a few words. He wrote this to a, uh, to a man who was asking for similar counsel. He said, bear, 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 forbear, forbear, forbear. In yielding, there is victory. In other words, don't return evil for evil. Love your enemy. And that's what we get to in the next, the final weapon that we're given, number five. The fifth weapon to overcome evil. Paul tells this. Don't don't go get vengeance. That's God's job. He's going to repair justice. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Once we have believed in this truth of God's justice, we are free to love our enemy with tangible deeds of love. We can respond to those who commit evil against us in tangible, practical ways. But what does it mean to heap burning coals on our enemy's head? Doesn't this kind of sound unloving? And I, and I admit I used to think that, and I came across a very helpful statement about this. Let me read it to you. This author writes, To heap burning coals on an enemy's head sounds like an unfriendly act. And indeed it does. 
uh, incompatible with loving that person. But it is a figure of speech for causing an acute sense of shame. And here it is. Not in order to hurt or humiliate that person, but in order to bring the person to repentance and so overcome evil with good. We are freed from seeking personal retribution by embracing the truth that God will most surely accomplish perfect justice. And then we are free to return to our neighbors evil with good. And this statement is not just about feeding and uh, giving people our enemies something to drink. It's representative of all kinds of tangible good deeds that we can do for our enemy. When we strike back, and this is what Paul concludes with. He says, do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we strike back and retaliate, we have at that point been overcome by evil. It's that simple. When we strike back and we retaliate uh, against that evil that was committed against us, we have been overcome by evil. We are not walking in the path of Christ. But when you resist the temptation to seek your own revenge and and to return evil for evil... When you strive to live at peace with all people, even those who have sinned against you, when you fix your heart on the truth that God will make sure that all justice is someday served, then you are walking in the footsteps of your Savior and actively overcoming evil with good. A life like this will be filled with joy and filled with spiritual power. You will be resilient in the face of trouble and you will find the energy to persevere through trials. You will keep a good conscience and you will sow a ministry of peace. That's what it looks like to overcome evil with evil. Let's pray and ask God to help us do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, these short, simple sentences that we can memorize and we can use. God, I pray that you would help us to see that justice has been served in the cross of Christ. It is being served uh, by the appropriate authorities right now, and it will be ultimately finally served in the final judgment. And for that reason, we don't have to seek our own vengeance. God, help us to believe these things so we might be free to love our neighbor, to call evil what it is, to let you deal with it, And then love those who have even acted harmfully against us. Help us do these things for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen.